Today we are beginning a brand uh, new book in the Scripture, in the New Testament. And that book is the book of Ephesians. That book is the book of Ephesians. hope you got a uh, either following on, along in your book or hopefully you picked up a paper. The paper that's out there has a little bit more information uh, on there that we want to share with the book of Ephesians. On um, the book of Ephesians, I was reading one commentator this week, and he called it the Mount Everest of Scripture. Uh, because uh, there is so much rich teaching about God and about the life of the believer that he called it the pinnacle, uh, the pinnacle of Christian teaching because it reveals so much to us uh, in this short letter. It's only six chapters, but it's amazing how much is packed into these six short chapters of Scripture. So what we're going to do today, as we normally do, When we approach a book, we're going to give an overview today. And then next week, we're going to get into the text itself and begin to break down some of of the details and the richness of this book of Ephesians. Um, But first of all, let me just show you uh, up here on our TV screens. It's not... uh, You see a little red dot almost in the middle of the TV screens. That is where ancient Ephesus was. Down on the screen to your right, kind of at the bottom, that's where Israel is. Of course, that big blue body of water is the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, And you see just kind of going up north from Israel and taking a left turn through Turkey, you come uh, almost to the seashore and you find uh, the city of Ephesus. And of course, over to your top right or your top left is, that's uh, Rome up there. Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote the letter to the churches at Ephesus. Uh, Ephesians, uh, Colossians uh, are two of the first what we call prison epistles. And we call them prison epistles because Paul wrote them, guess from where? In prison, in prison. Paul wrote them from prison. And he sent them, uh, this letter in Colossians by Titus back to uh, the churches in the area around Ephesus and then the Uh, Colossians, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks over to the churches in uh, Colossae. Uh, This letter to uh, Ephesus and the churches in Ephesus was a widely circulated letter. And some of the interesting facts about the letter of Ephesus, when we went to uh, 1 Corinthians, we saw a lot of very detailed and specific information about what was going on in that church. I mean, it was down to, hey, here's some people in your church that's doing this. Here's how you need to address it. So in letters like 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing very specific issues that are happening within the local churches. Um, Ephesians doesn't really address a lot of pointed, specific issues in one church in one place. Ephesians is more of a general letter. Uh, that Paul writes. Of course, there are issues that are dealing with the church, but some of the issues dealing with the church can fit Ephesus, it could also fit Colossians, and it could fit a lot of the churches in that day. And, you know, Ephesians is more theological-based. There's more uh, teaching, uh, per se, about God than it is just addressing practical issues. Now, it does deal with a lot of practical issues in the life of the believer, but again, it's more of a general sense that we all can apply to ourselves. It's not void of a historic context, but it's just more general in nature. So looking at our uh, orienting data uh, in our book or on our paper, kind of the who, what, when, where, and why, uh, the content 
of the book of Ephesians is a letter of encouragement and exhortation. Uh, encouragement and exhortation. Set against the backdrop of terms that Paul uses here in the book of Ephesus, and we'll get more in it next week, but the, the spiritual powers that we face. He talked about principalities and powers and might and dominion of this world. The spiritual forces that are working against humanity to cause disruption and deception. There are a lot of spiritual forces in the world that would cause us to be deceived and distracted from the truth of Christ. And Paul speaks about these in several places in the book of Ephesians. He speaks against these spiritual powers. So kind of with these spiritual powers that we face in life and the churches faced in life, he writes this letter of exhortation and encouragement. In the letter to uh, the Ephesian churches, just like in many other letters, another emphasis is the unity of the body. That is a big, big theme in the book of Ephesians, the unity of the body, specifically bringing Jew and Gentile believers together in one body. And that's a theme that we've seen play out in just about every letter that we've looked at so far. And it's a theme that here again is another major theme in the book of Ephesians, the Jew and the Gentile body coming together in one. And this is God's ultimate triumph and glory. So that's a little bit of the content. The author is, of course, the Apostle Paul. Uh, the date it was written, uh, early 60s, anywhere between AD 60 and uh, 62, again, uh, probably from Rome. Uh, there's a couple of other scenarios of other prisons that Paul could be in, but the traditional uh, interpret or the traditional accepted view is that Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote the book of Ephesians. Again, the recipients, uh, this was a circular letter circulated among many different churches, all in the providence of Asia and in the area of ancient Ephesus. Uh, the occasion, again, Paul is in prison, uh, perhaps reflecting further on the Colossian situation and on the glory of Christ. It's amazing, and here's, here's the amazing thing I love, and we'll point it out a little more next week. But Paul is like writing these letters, and he's dealing with the issue, and then it almost seems that Paul in the moment is just captured by the goodness and the glory of God. And he goes and almost starts writing a psalm or praise unto God. So if you can just imagine that Paul is in a situation where he is in prison, but yet his, his body is chained, but his mind is free. And in the midst of him dwelling on, on the gospel, sitting in prison, he begins to write these glorious praises and thanksgivings unto God. And I think to show us that no matter what situation that, that we are in, you know, we might be physically in this situation or this circumstance, but our spirit is always seated in heavenly places with Christ. And he is always here with us. And that causes Paul to burst out in rhapsody of praise in many different situations. So uh, when Paul is speaking here of our blessings in Christ, when he's speaking of God doing amazing work among Jews and Gentiles together, and people are getting saved and experiencing new life in Jesus Christ, it causes Paul to glory in the goodness of God. So he's sitting in prison reflecting on the situations going on in the church and then on the glory of Christ. Again, against the backdrops of the powers of this dark world, uh, which the darker the world is, the brighter the light of Christ can shine and the brighter the hope 
of Christ is. Uh, And Paul writes this general pastoral letter uh, to the churches in that area. Uh, The emphasis of the book of Ephesians is the cosmic scope of the work of Christ. Christ's reconciliation of Jew and Gentile through the cross. Christ's supremacy over the powers, because we have to remember even though there are spiritual powers and forces working against us, Christ has caused us to triumph over those spiritual forces. So just because they're spiritual forces doesn't mean that we're defeated. It means we have victory over them through Jesus Christ. And Paul, and Paul will give a whole section about the believer's warfare in Christ. Um, he also deals a lot with the Christian behavior, the behavior of the Christian that reflects in the unity of the Spirit. So the two-sided nature of Paul is who the believer is in their position in Christ. And then secondly, how believers live out of that new position in Christ. And how we live out our position in Christ has a great reflection on the gospel itself and how we live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, and brings us and should bring us into unity of the Spirit. So that's kind of our who, what, when, where, and why of the book of Ephesus. Uh, in the middle of your paper here, this is something that I added. So if you have a paper, I have a little section about the church at Ephesus. Um, and I took the majority of this from a commentator. So I'm just going to read through this middle section here on our paper. And this is just a little background of the church itself. So about the church in Ephesus. Um, the church in Ephesus was planted by Paul during a brief visit. This congregation was nurtured by Paul's co-laborers, Priscilla and Aquila. Then by the eloquent expositor, Apollos. You can find some of the background there in Acts chapter 18. Paul subsequently returned to Ephesus for an extended three-year period of ministry, marked by the victory of Christ's gospel and the spirit over demonic powers and the entrenched commercial interest surrounding the city's world-famous temple, Of Artemis. Later, bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders, Paul summoned them to be vigilant to protect God's sheep from fierce wolves and false shepherds. Writing from prison even later, Paul summoned this church to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a maturity that would enable them to stand firm against human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The apostle insisted that the church exercise theological discernment. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So just a little bit of background on Paul's relationship with the church. Founding the church, even though he left it to others to kind of cultivate it. Paul came back, spent some time there. And then now when he ends up in Rome, he is still speaking to the believers in this area. Uh, here in Asia Minor and Ephesus. Of course, we also know a little bit about the church in Ephesus, and there were the churches around Ephesus a little later on in Scripture from the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, we won't read it, but you can go back and read that. It's a very pretty familiar passage to all of us. But Christ speaks to the church at Ephesus. And during this time, uh, Jesus speaks about some good things that the church in Ephesus was doing. Uh, The church in Ephesus was still faithful to the Word of God at the time. Um, They were rejecting those who were 
uh, bringing in false doctrines and teaching heresies. But however, Christ pointed out one thing against the church at Ephesus. And does anybody remember what that was? What was that? They weren't lukewarm. That's Laodicea. Anybody remember? They left their first love. They had left their first love. They still held to the truth. Uh, they still were faithful to the word, but their passion, their first love had began to fade away. And Christ, and Christ tells them to repent and go back and do the first works. So when they first experienced Christ and their heart and their life was on fire for the Lord. So a little brief uh, history about the church at Ephesus. Continuing on on our paper, some of the major themes in Ephesus, if there's a key verse, which there could literally be a key verse every chapter in the book of Ephesians. But if the major key verse is chapter 1, verse 3. That says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father who's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Uh, some of the major key words in the book of uh, Ephesians is the word body, which speaking of the body of believers, uh, the word church, the word grace, uh, heavenly places in Christ where our blessings are, where we are seated together with Christ. Uh, another key word is the word in Christ or in Words similar, in him or in whom. Uh, the word love plays a prominent role in the book of Ephesians. And the word spirit or the Holy Spirit, again, plays a very important role in the book of Ephesians. The overall theme, if you could simplify it, is the exaltation and unity in Christ. How we are exalted in Christ with every spiritual blessing. How we're exalted above the divisions in the world, how we're exalted above the powers of the world, and how we have unity with Christ and unity in Christ with other believers. So the overall theme, exaltation and unity. Just a little, little tidbit here on our paper, the four postures of the believer. Uh, in Ephesians 2 verse 6, the Bible talks about that we are seated with him in heavenly places. So that's one of the postures of the believer that we are seated. Uh, another posture of the believer, Paul says in Ephesians 3.14, I bow my knee to the Lord Jesus. So kneeling in awe and worship at his glory and his goodness. Uh, the next posture of the believer is walking. It's important that we walk in Christ, how we walk in Christ. And then in chapter 6, verse 11 the last posture of the believer that we find here is we are standing. Therefore, when we're facing the, the things of this world, that we are to stand in Christ and we are to stand victorious. So we find ourselves in these postures. We are seated with him in heavenly places. We kneel before him in his glory and worship and honor and adoration. We walk in His truth, we walk in the Spirit, we walk in His righteousness, and then we stand against everything that this world 
and every enemy that would come against us would try to throw at us, we stand against it. Seated, kneeling, walking, and standing. Uh, another big theme of the book of Ephesians is the theme of the church itself. Again, even though this letter was written to specific churches in the specific area, you know, here of Ephesus and Asia Minor, widely circulated because of its uh, generalities, because it speaks more of the church as a universal body than just as it does as a local body. Now, we know that the church is the word ecclesia, and it means the called out assembly, those who are called out and assembled together as God's people. And the church functions universally, and the church functions locally. So there are many local churches in the universal church. You know, there are many body of believers, there are many denominations in our world today, but they are all under the universal aspect of Christ's church in whom he is the head of the church. So the, the two aspects that are really mentioned here in the book of Ephesians is the mystical body of Christ. It's the theme that the church is the body of Christ on the earth today. Now you have to track with me just for a moment here. When Jesus walked the earth, Jesus was a man birthed by Mary, as we just got finished with Christmas. Uh, he was God incarnate in man, walking physically, fleshly on the earth, filled with the Spirit, doing the works and the will of God. Now Jesus, the physical man, died on the cross, was put in a tomb, and three days later resurrected from the dead. And then he ascended, the body of Jesus ascended into heaven. So we often say, you know, well, Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, which is true. But however, there is still a body of Christ on the earth today. Just as Jesus was a body walking on the earth, there is still a body walking on the earth today, the body of Christ. But it's not one man. The Bible calls this body a many-membered body. It's not one physical body, but it's all of us together as the body of Christ. With Christ in heaven being the head of the body, and us here on the earth being the hands and the feet and the mouth of Christ here on the earth today filled with the same Spirit that filled Jesus, is the same Spirit that fills His body today. So the church is the physical expression of Christ on the earth today. So I like to say, while the man Jesus ascended into heaven, Christ, which means the anointed one, who was anointed by the Holy Spirit, is still on the earth today just in a different body, a many-membered body called the ecclesia, called out to be the people of God in the world today. And Paul speaks of this body, and he speaks as Christ being the head, and the body is the fullness of him that fills this world today. And this body is the mystical body of Christ, and it's also the universal 
body of believers. Again, not just one local, but the universal body, all believers everywhere. So that, that's one of the major emphasis of the church in the book of Ephesians. Another major theme that we see in the book of Ephesians is the believer's position. We mentioned this in one of our key words, but we find this phrase, and Paul goes overboard with this phrase in Ephesians, and I'm glad he went overboard. And the phrase is in Christ, or in Him, or in whom we have this. When Paul speaks of this word in Christ, um, it is a magnificent picture. It shows the believers standing before God. It shows the believers' position before God. And our position is in Christ. When we were born into this world, we were born in Adam. Being born in Adam means we were born in sin. It means our spirits were born spiritually dead. It means we were born in the spirit separated from Christ. It means we were given over to the, the desires and the lust of our flesh. That we identified with Adam, who sinned and disobeyed God a long time ago. And because Adam disobeyed God, sin came into the world, and sin and death passed upon all people. So we are lost. We are spiritually dead. We are hopeless. We are in Adam. But then something amazing happens, and we are made alive in Christ. And when we are made alive in Christ, we move our position from in Adam to in Christ. In Adam, we were lost. In Christ, we are found. In Adam, we are condemned. In Christ, we are justified. In Adam, we are sinners. In Christ, we are saints. In Adam, we are hopeless. In Christ, we have eternal hope. In Adam, we are an old creation. In Christ, we are a new creation. So here are some of the words that the New Testament says about what we have in Christ. Okay? We have redemption in Christ. There is, this isn't on your paper. This is just me spitting it out. This is what I wrote in pen after I'd written that down. So you may want to write this down or go back and watch it online. Um, we have redemption in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. We were all condemned under Adam. There is no condemnation in Christ. The scripture says we are sanctified in Christ, set apart, made holy in Christ. In Adam, we are unholy. In Christ, He has made us holy. The Bible says we are triumphant in Christ. The Bible says we're a new creation in Christ. It says we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. It says we are seated in Christ and seated with Christ. It says we're chosen in Christ. It says we're accepted in Christ. And it says in Colossians 2 that we are complete in Him, lacking nothing. So you see there's a major difference in being in Adam 
and being in Christ. And Adam is death and spiritual death, and Christ is life and spiritual life. In Adam, there's flesh. In Christ, we're filled with the Spirit. Now, here's the challenge for us as believers. Paul says that we are in Christ. He translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. He says we have passed from death into life. But here's where we struggle. Here's a lot of our struggle. That positionally, we as believers are in Christ. We've been made brand new. We have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We are not condemned. We are sanctified. We are justified. We are righteous. So that's who we are. But yet, we still look at ourselves and judge ourselves as if we were still in Adam. And that's where we feel condemned and we feel unworthy and we feel that God can't use us and God doesn't hear us and we wonder if God loves us today because we're in Christ, but we still see ourselves according to who we were in Adam. You say, well, yeah, I, I, still may, I still may mess up. I still may reflect some of those old things, but the Bible says you are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ. And our old man was crucified with him. The old man is dead. You are new in Christ. So that's how we as believers need to see ourselves. And when we do that way, I don't think we'll struggle as much as we used to. We won't struggle with our acceptance, our worthiness, our love. We, we won't struggle. And I believe that's the key to freeing us from a lot of sin and a lot of the things that hold us down because He has made us free, but in our minds we are still bound and we still see ourselves in Adam. So in Christ are spiritual realities. It's who you are in the Spirit. In Christ is our position, our standing before God, our right standing before God. And then in Christ is our union with Him. Remember back in 1 Corinthians, the Scripture says, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. As using the analogy of just as a husband and a wife is one flesh together, those who are joined to Christ are one spirit. We have union with Christ. We, there is no separation. We are in Him and He is in us, dwelling and living with us as His temple. Those are amazing spiritual realities. That's amazing, the truth. And that's what is what Paul, how he begins his letter. Is there any wonder that he has to stop in the middle and just give God praise for his glory and his goodness? There's no, we would all do that. I, I want to do that when, when I dwell on all that I am in Christ and all that he has done for me in redemption. So that's the believer's position. Next we see uh, on the bottom of first page, the believer's warfare, the believer's warfare. And this comes in Ephesians chapter 6 when we talk about the armor of God. We're probably all familiar, you know, with the scriptures about the, the armor of God. And here's the essence of the armor of God, and we'll talk more about it next week. We might have to take a couple of weeks on Ephesians because there's just so much. I want to teach it all right now, and I can't. But uh, the armor of God uh, is what he has given us. 
to stand against the forces, the enemies that would try to come against us, to deceive us, to attack us. And here's the essence of the armor of God. You already have it. It's not something you have to work for and earn and find. You already have everything you need. Now, he puts in the context of put it on. You see, we're in Christ. We have the mind of Christ, but sometimes our mind is still dwelling as if we were, again, carnal in Adam. So he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. When the enemy tries to come and tell you that you are not righteous and you are not worthy, you say, no, I have a breastplate of righteousness with Christ guarding my heart, and he says I'm righteous. You have all the armor of God. You have everything you need to stand against the enemy when he comes against you. And you have everything you need to stand against the the enemy, Satan, who is already defeated. And that's the thing we have to come to as well in the finished work of Christ. Satan's already defeated. He was defeated 2,000 years ago. You know what he does now? He sets traps for us, hoping we'll fall into a trap. He lies to us, hoping we'll believe a lie. He deceives us hoping that we will fall into deception. He tempts us, hoping that we'll let our flesh overrule our spirit. Satan has no power over the believer. He has no right or authority in the believer's life. I always say we give way more credit to the devil than we, than we should. You know, and I've, I've just been around churches that it seems like all they talk about is the devil. All they talk about what the devil's doing and how the devil's beating me and how he's on my back and all of this. And I'm just like, Where's Jesus in this equation at all? Because Jesus and the devil aren't fighting it out. In fact, the devil's not called his adversary. He's called our adversary. The devil's not on the same level as God. He is a defeated foe that tries to deceive us and tempt us and lie to us and trick us and trap trap us and tries just to, to hurl darts and accusations at us. But the Bible says we have this armor that we can quench all, all the fiery darts of the devil. You know, the scripture tells us to resist the devil. Simply resist the devil and he will flee from us. He is not as powerful. We are way more powerful in Christ than we could ever imagine. The only reason that the enemy has footholds in our life is we have left the door cracked open. And the armor of God gives us everything we need to stand against an enemy that is already defeated. That is already defeated. And we are just to stand in the victory of Jesus against that enemy. So the believers warfare. On one hand, the believers have warfare. On the other hand, the war is over. The war is over. All right, on the back of that page, let's look at kind of the the overview of Ephesians and we'll kind of give an outline. Here's a simple outline that we'll go through and we'll use this uh, next week. Uh, We've kind of gone over that first paragraph. We've talked about that a little bit. So we'll just kind of start with uh, each chapter. In the first chapter, so that way, you know, I, I encourage you, and we're getting into the books now that you can sit down and you can read you know, Ephesians in one sitting. And I would encourage you to, to do that because Ephesians, you know, we could do it with Galatians and Colossians and Philippians. These are small books that we can take time to sit down and really just read them from beginning to end the way that they were intended to be read. They really weren't intended to be read you know, a chunk at a time. It was intended as any letter to be read all the way straight through. But this will give you a little bit of help on what's going on in each chapter. Uh, So in chapter one, we begin with a salutation and a greeting, a very short greeting, just two verses of salutation and greeting. And then Paul begins 
to go over all of our spiritual blessings in Christ. And that is such a rich, there's what, about 11 verses there that he talks about our spiritual blessings. Those 11 verses are so rich and that we'll never be able to mind the depths of them while we are here in this, in this earth in our finite mind. It is so glorious. We could spend a whole half a year just on what's in those 11 verses. It's, it's amazing. So he starts out with praise to God for our spiritual blessings in Christ. And then in the after, right after that in chapter 1, he gives thanksgiving and prayer for the church. And that's where he begins to talk about the church as the body of Christ and Christ being the head of the church and that God would give unto the church the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and who we are in him. So we find chapter one, the salutation and greeting, our spiritual blessings, and then a thanksgiving and prayer uh, from Paul for the church. In chapter two, we find um, this is where we begin to talk about redemption and reconciliation a little bit. Chapter two begins, we are dead in our sins, but we are made alive in Christ. Uh, so he talks about how we're made alive in Christ. Uh, and he shows us that by uh, grace, you have been saved through faith. And it gives us the wonderful uh, definition of salvation there in Ephesians chapter two. Uh, also in Ephesians chapter two, during the last part of that chapter, it begins to talk about the Jew and Gentile reconciliation. And now Jews and Gentiles who had been separated their whole lives in different cultures, that Christ has broken down the wall of partition that stood between them and has brought the Jew and Gentile together in one body in Christ. That no longer is there is the believing Jew and the believing Gentile separate, but he is made of two, one new man in one new Body. So it talks about the reconciliation and the unity of the Jew and Gentile. And it puts them in the context of together they are a spiritual temple unto God. So another rich theological chapter in chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 3, we find uh, he continues the theme of the Gentile inclusion. And he puts it in the context of a mystery. That the mystery was hidden from ages before. It was hidden from the old covenant saints, but now the mystery of God has been shown and made manifest, and that is that the Gentiles are together in one body in Christ and are recipients and inheritance of the blessings of God. And it's in that mystery and in that Gentile inclusion that Paul shares his role, and that is an apostle to the Gentiles. And then thinking of this, he breaks into another prayer and prays unto God for this glorious truth of now that Gentiles can now, are now included in the redemption plan and in the redemptive narrative of God's plan. That takes place in, in chapter 3. He continues that Gentile theme. In chapter 4, we begin to shift more a little bit from the theological truth. So in chapter 1, we have the great theological truths about our blessings in Christ. In chapter 2, we have the great theological truths about our new life in Christ, being made alive in Christ. 
Uh, and then in chapters 2 and 3, we have the great theological discussions about the Jew and Gentile uh, inclusion and unity together. So that's very theological. It's good theological teaching. Now he's going to kind of shift a little bit to the more practical application of what does it look like when we're alive in Christ? What does it look like? What kind of attitudes should those Jews and Gentiles have in order for them to live together in one body? Because how many of you know it's difficult just for two people to live together uh, you know, in, 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 one, in one household, let alone when you multiply that, let alone when you come to church and everybody's supposed to come together. So there has to be something that knits us all together. And in the midst of our diversity and differences brings unity. And that is our, our walk and our attitude. Our attitude toward God, our attitude toward one another. Uh, and so this is what he begins to shift to. So in chapter 4, he starts out by calling for unity in the body. You know, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. He emphasizes the oneness of the body of Christ. And then he talks about how the church as one body is equipped and edified. He talks about how God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that the saints could be equipped and that the body would be edified and the body would grow into love and maturity. So you could also add, under that first line in chapter 4, you could also add uh, a mature body because that's what Paul wants. He wants the church to grow in their unity, to grow in their love, to be edified so that they would be mature, so that they wouldn't be children or act childish, but they would grow up into maturity. And it's shown that they're growing up into maturity because of their walk. So they maintain unity as one body, but they also maintain unity through the righteous walk of the believers. And if you notice, he does write it because you know, this is how Christians live out their righteousness. This is what they do. They put off anger and lying and evil speaking. So believers shouldn't be doing those things. But it's more than just, here's a list of do's and don'ts for you as a Christian. These lists of do's and don'ts, these imperatives that Paul lists here in chapter 4 is for the sake of the unity in the body. That's the reason he says these things, because most of them are relational. Because that's how we keep unity in the body, through our righteous walk. So he begins to encourage the righteous walk of the believers in chapter 4. Then when we go through chapter 5, um, we have the righteous walk continued theme. It's continuing the theme from chapter 4 to 5. And it's the righteous walk empowered by love and empowered by the Holy Spirit because the proof of our maturity is actually not what we would say our spirituality. The proof of our maturity is our love. And Paul makes it clear that this life that he's encouraging the believers to live is empowered by number one, being imitators of God and following God, and number two, by love, and number three, by the Spirit. Because without following and imitating God, without love, and without the Spirit, we make these imperatives in the Scriptures just another bunch of religious laws. And we've gone over, over, and over again, it's not about religious laws, it's about a life changed by the heart of the believer changed. So he's not just saying follow these rules, he's saying this is how you live as the people of God 
following God, compelled by love, and empowered by the Spirit. So, and he talks about those things of love and the Holy Spirit in the first part of chapter 5. And in the, the bottom half of chapter 5, he shows the unity of the body as shown in Christian households between husband and wife, between children and parents. And here's the issue, and he spent some time talking about the husband and wife. Uh, and it's not just like Paul's like, okay, I'm writing all this theological stuff. I'm writing how to live in the body of Christ. I'm going to stick something about marriage over here. Here's the reason that God loves marriage. And here's the reason that the marriage covenant is so important. And here's the reason that God hates divorce. And here's the reason that God doesn't want people, you know, shacking up before marriage is because marriage between a man and a woman is a picture. It is an earthly picture of something greater. So if the earthly marriage is distorted, it distorts the greater picture. And what Paul is saying here is that the picture of a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It's a picture of Christ and the church together in covenant, intimate, and one. So again, even when he's talking about husband and wife and marriage, he's still talking about unity in the body. That we are one together and we are one with Christ. Just as a husband and wife is one and, and the husband loves his wife and the wife submits to her husband and all these things, it's a picture of Christ and the church. So again, that's why we have to keep the covenant of marriage sacred even in our world because it's a picture. If that gets distorted, then the reality of Christ and the church and the message gets distorted as well. So it still has to do with the unity of the body. Um, then we go to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the final chapter. Um, that should be chapter 6, not 5 on that slide. It's right on your paper. I copied and pasted and then changed it. So. Um, but in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, um, it's showing that the righteous walk and unity, I'll add that in there, and unity, is displayed through submission. Displayed through submission. Um, between different aspects of life. And again, that shows unity of the body through a righteous walk of the believers. And then in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 6 is the believer's spiritual warfare and the armor of God and standing against the spiritual forces and the spiritual enemies that would try to come against us. And we talked about that just a few moments ago. And then the conclusion. Then we have a few verses of conclusion. So in chapter 6, we're still showing the unity of the believers and spiritual warfare, or our victorious spiritual warfare. So that's what happens in each chapter. Again, each chapter is so good, and uh, the book of Ephesians is so rich in its teaching and also rich in its application. Um, I'll let you read the bottom part, the specific advice. Um, it's nothing that we really haven't gone over before. It's just how everything ties together. So this is a great little book. Again, I would encourage you to go off and read it uh, this week, uh, thinking with these themes in mind. So you can recognize, hey, you know, I recognize this theme, and, and now I realize why he's telling us to do this, and because it, living this way affects our relationship over here, and having our mindset here affects this part of our life over here. So it's all connected together. Uh, it's a great letter. It's so rich. It, 
It should be about 50 chapters long, but it's six little chapters, uh, but it's got so much in there.